The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Richard Seymour. We spoke about the reasons for Labour's electoral defeat, what we can expect from Boris Johnson's government and the Labour leadership race. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, which includes an extra 30 minutes of discussion, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of all PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Crisis Movement Strategy, The Greek Experience, edited by Panagiotis Saturis. This edited volume grapples with the theoretical, analytical and strategic questions posed by the recent experience of the radical left in Greece, from extreme austerity to social mobilisation and the disaster of Syriza. This experience poses important theoretical and analytical questions regarding capitalist crisis, public debt, European integration, political crisis, the new forms of protest and social movements and the rise of neo-fascist parties. It also brings forward many pressing questions regarding radical left-wing strategy, relevant far beyond Greece itself. In the US, the book is available from haymarketbooks.org, and customers in the UK can find the book at all the usual online retailers. Richard Seymour is the author of many books, including The Liberal Defence of Murder, Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and his most recent book, The Twittering Machine, which we discussed in episode 56, and which is out now from the Indigo Press. Richard is also a commissioning editor for the journal Salvage. So during the election campaign, you were relatively bullish about Labour's prospects. And, you know, there seemed to be some some good reason for that. I I should say that I similarly uh, had hopes of at least a hung parliament. We had the uh, precedent of the 2017 election and we did see a narrowing of the polls during the election. We saw the the squeeze on the Lib Dem vote that many of us had expected, um, but clearly it wasn't enough. And the result was profoundly uh, disappointing. What do you think we missed and what do you think perhaps led to the overestimation of Labour's prospects on parts of the radical left? Well, I mean, first of all, we're doing this in the spirit of uh, reverse engineering in a way, Mm. Um, in as much as uh, we're just trying to unpack the results and see uh, what wasn't visible before. I mean, I should say in terms of uh, my personal bullishness, um, probably I was a bit more bullish on social media than uh, I actually felt because uh, like everybody else, I was going through this Thing that uh, I think James Butler referred to as candidatitis, where you one day think you're going to take over the world and next day feel utterly isolated and miserable. 
And I remember that some of the campaigning was uh, difficult, although I think possibly um, one source of bias is that I did most of my campaigning in London marginals. And in London marginals, it didn't actually look that bad. In fact, um, while initially it was uh, much more difficult, toward the end, you could feel it. There was this movement towards labor. Mm. And the people who were for labor were like delighted to be for labor. And it wasn't, I mean, there was some, you know, there was some reluctant voting. There were one or two people who said, yeah, well, you know, I will probably vote labor, you know, not massively pro-Corbyn or something like that. Mm. But this wasn't the kind of hostility that people were getting in the north of the country. And I think um, perhaps if I'd been done uh, doing a bit more of the calling um, that people were doing in northern marginals, um, you know, like, um, or had gone up to visit uh, some of these northern marginals, or even safe seats, what were assumed to be safe seats, I would have um, felt some of the hostility uh, that was coming at us. Um, so that's one problem. Um, another problem is that uh, Labour's data um, turns out not to have been very good. And I don't mean that to diss anybody with this, but it just is absolutely the case that there was a massive dissonance between um, what uh, the, the canvassing returns were saying and uh, what was coming out. Um, from what we were hearing, there were some northern seats that were looking really bad. Wrexham looked awful, you know, for example. But elsewhere, it didn't. It looked more stable than was being reported, and there was a feeling that perhaps the polls um, were, you know, th they were making assumptions that wouldn't be borne out. Uh, there was a lot that could be inferred from the the the, the granular data in the polls that didn't make sense. Um, uh, and in fact, actually, when you look at it, um, this has been pointed out. Even the polls didn't anticipate the swings. Uh, against Labour in these constituencies. Um, it was only the YouGov MRP poll um, saw that coming. Um, and, uh, you know, they then started to show us a swing towards Labour in the last week. So it's complicated. Um, although from what I, uh, from what I uh, have read, um, YouGov's private analyses and ongoing polling suggested that the swing toward Labour in the last week of the campaign was actually short-lived and that there was a swing back toward the Tories, you know, within a couple of days. In other words, you know, a lot of this election was decided on the Wednesday and the Thursday. Politically, it now seems uh, glaringly apparent that the big fault line was Brexit. And handling that uh, as a fault line and understanding how it damaged us um, is going to be really difficult because, as I've said before, and we'll say again, just because you have seen a problem doesn't mean that you've seen a solution. Just because we know where the fault line is doesn't mean we know how to fix it. Um, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of fantasies going around. On the right, uh, the Blairite right and, you know, the media and all the rest of it, the fantasy is um, that if only Corbyn had been a hard remainer, um, you know, and not been a secret Lexiter as they believe he was, uh, that um, the, the, you know, Labour could have mobilized uh, the majority Remainer vote, or such as they believe it to be. Um, and maybe if he'd swung a bit to the center, you know, that kind of thing. I don't buy that for a second. 
Um, but equally, I'm not entirely convinced that it would have been solved by having an Ian Lavery-style position, um, notwithstanding that he was right uh, about Labour's um, uh, damaged position in the North. There were no good options here. Um, and the, the fault line you know, goes way back, uh, be, well before 2019. So if you look um, at what happened with the Brexit referendum, you could already see this taking place. Um, this, there was this moment of politicization um, taking place around the nation state and the European Union. And the right was unifying. I mean, it had always been divided over Europe, but the, the forces of the right were gradually unifying around this idea of Brexit. Um, and, you know, Cameron was being left out in the cold, Cameron and the Osborneites and all the rest of them. On the left, it was actually dividing our forces, not um, immediately, obviously, uh, since, uh, you know, like most of the left was campaigning for Remain, Corbyn was campaigning for Remain, Alan Johnson was campaigning for Remain, if you count him on the left, uh, whatever that means. Um, and so um, it only became apparent in the aftermath uh, that the right had been unified and revivified, having for years been in crisis precisely over Europe, and had been unified precisely through the victory of the worst side. Um, and the left then faced this dilemma of how to respond. And I think Corbyn's um, instinct that we had to respect the uh, referendum result was all very good, um, in fact, necessary. Um, I think that those who immediately went to, uh, can we overturn this with a court case or can we overturn it with another referendum, uh, were ridiculous um, and, uh, you know, actually contributed to the radicalization of the hard right. Um, however, I think it's also clear that Corbyn's main objective with Brexit was to handle it in a way that unified the PLP. I don't think, this is what's wrong with the secret Lexiter narrative. If he'd thought that Europe was the most important issue in front of him, uh, he would probably have taken a harder line mm. and tried to develop a sort of a coherently left-wing position. Maybe a version of Remain and Reform, who knows? Maybe a version of Lexit, soft exit, whatever. But the point is that he didn't, and therefore everything that he's done um, between the referendum result, indeed everything that he's done since being elected, over Europe was about unifying the PLP um, and adjusting to uh, the pressures that were uh, being concentrated in and through the PLP, which would include pressures from the media, pressures from parts of the electorate, uh, especially in vulnerable parts of the electorate, and of course, pressure from parts of the membership. So in that respect, might we say that he chose the or the leadership team around Corbyn, uh, chose the least worst option in terms of holding the PLP together but not necessarily the least worst option in electoral terms, because it does seem as if perhaps a soft Brexit position might have been more electorally viable, but then perhaps that risks a greater split in the PLP. My feeling is that we would still have lost uh, with a soft Brexit, perhaps not by as many seats. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, we may have held on to a few of these, uh, you know, uh, long uh, decaying northern so-called strongholds, you know, former single industry constituencies. Um, but my point here would be that, um, you know, there was no obvious least worst option. But I do tend to think that probably sticking with the soft exit uh, was the better policy. 
um, just that it wasn't so much a matter of um, the policy as how Labour fought for it, articulated it, and defended it. So I think you could defend um, a sort of a Labour exit, let's put it like that, uh, which would have um, um, quite conspicuously, uh, conspicuously defended Labour values, um, like, uh, say, keeping workers' rights, like using the opportunity afforded by uh, getting out of ECJ jurisdiction to engage in more public intervention in the economy, all of that stuff. But that would have required a much more vocal campaign, whereas I think what Corbyn wanted to do and what his advisors probably wanted to do was to say, let it be their side. Let the enemy destroy themselves over it. Let them uh, pull themselves apart. And then we can come in and clean up the mess. We'll deliver a soft exit. And that priority, this is where I was coming to before, that priority became all the more um, urgent even after the 2017 election result. When Corbyn's standing was improved, it still became all the more important to actually hold together the PLP because we might actually win a majority. Um, so it was all the more important to get them used to being led from the left and, you know, marginalize the splitters and all the rest of it. And of course, that led to some of the most short-termist and opportunistic uh, movements on Corbyn's part. So what I'm saying here is um, there might have been a policy that would have mitigated the damage. Um, and indeed, it's possible that a version of the policy ultimately arrived at might have mitigated the damage. In other words, uh, the policy could have been decided on considerably before it was. Uh, Corbyn could have dithered a bit less and articulated his own stance uh, with regard to this. In other words, you know, that he would be neutral or whatever uh, well before the election rather than halfway through. Um, the, the messaging on this, the campaigning on this just seems to have gone badly awry. Um, so whatever policy was implemented, there had to be, in my opinion, a clear stance, and there just wasn't. And it was terrible that you ended up getting Labour MPs going question time or whatever, couldn't tell you uh, how they would campaign in the event of a referendum, um, for, for, for understandable reasons, but still disastrous. And also um, that, you know, when they tried to explain the position, they were actually apologetic. And it's like, I know it's a bit complicated, but bear with me. This sounded ridiculous. Um, I think the only way to sell any Labour policy was, look, this has been going on for three years. It's an absolute nightmare. It's a disaster. Um, we will end the nightmare and we'll end it quickly and we'll end it in a way that protects workers' rights, whatever the position might be. So, um, you know, I think uh, a, lot, a lot went wrong there, but a lot of it can be traced surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, uh, actually, to a certain kind of parliamentary opportunism, you know, uh, favoring short-term parliamentary victors. We beat May in, you know, a Commons vote, and that's supposed to look good. Um, we tied up Boris Johnson in the Commons, and that's supposed to look good. And, you know, to be fair, it was pretty easy to be buoyed up by those optics at the time. But some people were warning, and I think James Meadway was among them, saying, look, the people who are saying that Corbyn has just played a blinder are the people who've been wrong about everything in politics for the last few years. So we need to be really careful about this. We need to be campaigning on the ground, otherwise we risk losing. Um, and they were right about this. Um, so, I, you know, um, can I add one other thing to that? Yeah, um, 
I think the the big picture issue um, with the Corbyn project and Brexit epitomizes it, but obviously it's not the only issue, um, is that <clears throat> in the uh, interests of going for a, a sort of long game, you know, we build up our hegemony, we build up our support among different branches of the party, we get elected and we build it for a couple of terms, you know, that kind of thing, which is an understandable strategic perspective, but in the name of that, they missed the decisive point about the conjuncture, which was that it was heading for a rupture. And that's what we've seen over the last few years, a rupture in which the entire political alignment um, of forces in the United Kingdom has been um, uh, reset, um, realigned massively quickly. Um, so we saw that in Scotland. Uh, we saw it with the Brexit vote. We saw it with Corbyn um, in 2017. We should have expected that we needed to act quickly and aggressively and with a certain kind of ruthlessness that we've seen on the right, um, rather than you know settling in um, for the kind of long game that uh, Corbyn and McDonnell actually opted for. And I think ultimately that's going to be, um, I, I think, the the most cutting criticism of the way they handled it. I mean, clearly, as I mean, as you as you described, there are all sorts of contingent factors which which are relevant to to Labour's defeat, um, and clearly, the most important one seems to be the position on on Brexit. Um, one of the things I felt immediately after the election result, and perhaps this was partly due to my thinking a lot about the role of the media in Labour's defeat, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to say it's it's uh, the only reason or necessarily the biggest reason. I don't don't think it really was, but it's certainly an important factor. But what that sort of impressed upon me was the extent to which the left remains in a general position of weakness in the sense that we um, there's a you know low level of industrial action the unions are in a def defensive posture we don't uh, have a significant media which can can reach a very broad public although we have some you know obviously some alternative media which is able to reach reach uh, part of our constituency but the absence of institutions and a movement in which people can develop an alternative perspective on reality seemed to me to be to be very striking and something perhaps that we hadn't thought enough about because we got so caught up in 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 the importance of defending the Corbyn project and and the possibilities of of victory because all right, we lost that election, but it's by no means obvious that had Labour won the election, that Labour would not have been defeated in government because of those weaknesses. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear that um, the Corbyn project um, sort of uh, propelled stratospherically beyond uh, the left's uh, built-up social base. And that's been a pattern um, in European politics, definitely, uh, since uh, you know 2011, 2012, we've seen it with various radical left formations, uh, from Podemos to Syriza and so on. Uh, we've seen it with the right, of course, as well. But you see, you see, essentially, in, in in the sort of breakdown and collapse of the existing political consensus, uh, with the maturing of um, the sort of post-democratic stalemate in which the Old parties have been losing members, votes, organization, and party identity for a long, long time. You saw situations in which small parties, weakly rooted, could suddenly propel themselves um, into um, levels of influence they never had before. And they've had to adapt really quickly and often fumbled it. Um, uh, you know, and obviously the worst example is uh, what happened with Syriza. But um, uh, with Labour, the difference was that we inherited a party. 
you know, and that came with an enormous amount of uh, clout and strength, but it also uh, brought uh, with it all the uh, inherited weaknesses and contradictions of laborism. Um, and, you know, it meant having, you know, a left-wing leader having to lead a pluralist party, not, you know, uh, an entirely democratic party, uh, but one where a lot of different interests are combined and where uh, there's a hierarchy of influence and um, and so on. And I think probably uh, the biggest uh, failure um, in terms of uh, organizing within the party in order to be able to organize beyond the party was the, the decision to let the um, Democracy um, Commission's findings just go to rot. Um, I mean, uh, I think that the people who drafted the Democracy Commission must be, uh, indeed were, desperately disappointed and angry by what happened there. Um, and so, you know, I at the time I felt, well, we can come back, we can fight for this, we can come back next year and get open selection, or, you know, whenever. Um, but it's pretty clear now that we had less time than we thought. Um, in terms of community organizing, Corbyn did obviously set up a community organizing unit, and there is some interesting data on this. I don't know how reliable this is, but um, uh, Labour um, by the many has put out figures saying, that in seats where the this community organizing unit was actually operating, and it was only operating in a small number of seats, 25 or 30 or something like that, but the average swing against labor was much, much lower than elsewhere. Now, you'd want to control for other factors, like uh, were they only working in remain seats where the swing against labor was weaker anyway? Um, I'm not, I, I, I don't know, but I'm just suggesting that the community organizing might have actually had some effect here. Um, but if so, this is still a fairly thin and shallow effect. We've still got a, a work of uh, rebuilding. And, you know, I've, I've always said it's a, it's a, it's a generation's work. Um, and what we may now find, indeed, I think what we are finding is that the Corbyn project was one moment in that reconstruction, uh, a long period of reconstruction, rather than um, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, miracle that solves all the problems uh, in the short run. Um, and, you know, even I don't want to um, in any way uh, gloss this as a, an optimistic case, but um, it is true that the left today is stronger than it was in 2015. You know, I mean, it's true in the most disastrous. How, how much circuit. is that saying? <laughs> give, yeah, give but, uh, it, I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously, my expectations in 2015 were extremely low. Yeah. Um, as you probably recall, the first edition of Corbyn, I expected him to get uh, thrown out within a couple of years. Um, and I thought, well, then there will be a split of a small uh, section of the membership, the, the most uh, hardened and militant, and maybe something will be built out of that, I thought. Well, it, 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 it's a different situation, um, and it's one in which the left um, has um, uh, s still some clout within a party of, uh, I don't know, about half a million members, and within the trade union movement and so on. And the left-wing critique, we might not win the day in terms of who wins the Labour leadership. Um, you know, um, I, I highly suspect that um, just enough Corbynites will swing behind Starmer. But 
um, we will be listened to um, and we will not be uh, as utterly marginal as we were before. Uh, that said, of course, um, you know, they're going to come for us. Um, and there's also a question of, do we want to get tangled up in fighting for positions within a party bureaucracy, um, which will be exhausting? The turf fights will be uh, exhausting and depleting and so on. Is that worth the candle? Especially if a leader takes uh, control who decides that, uh, you know, he might want to get shot of momentum, get shot of the left, and so on. Um, that's a question. The other question is, what kinds of organization, what levels of organization, what kinds of strategy uh, will be most effective at combating this uh, wave of disaster nationalism um, at the grassroots level? Um, because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's useful to fight for um, party representation and electoral politics can't be um, forsaken. But there are other things going on. There are other things afoot. Um, and there are going to be struggles to defend hospitals. There are going to be struggles to defend migrants. Uh, you know, there are going to be um, struggles over climate change. This stuff isn't going to go away. And of course, there will be uh, the inevitable contradictions of the actual Brexit project as it's unrolled. And the economy is not looking too good either. Um, so there will be moments uh, to organize. Um, but if I may say so, you know, in the past, the left has done pretty well in terms of street organizing, social movement style organizing uh, in this country, not in terms of workplace organization. Uh, that's been very poor. Um, but it's not had the kind of national um, federation, if you like, of different viewpoints, different interests, and um, and so on. So the anti-austerity movement never rose to the level of a national political challenge. Uh, as such, you know, we ended up with Milibandism, uh, you know, representing us uh, in, in electoral terms. Um, so the fact that, um, you know, we... Uh, we uh, for four years had the leadership of the Labour Party under the control of someone like Jeremy Corbyn um, uh, did make a big difference. So it's a question of how to articulate um, the sort of street movement style campaigning with the, which all but disappeared in the Corbyn period actually, uh, with the um, sort of necessities of having a, a sort of a hegemonic project operating in and through a party. Um, and that's, you know, obviously that depends on who wins the Labour leadership, how we answer that question. Um, but there's no uh, straightforward answers coming down the pipeline there. Going back to that point about this being, um, you say this is a generational struggle of reconstruction. And Obviously, reconstruction makes one think of, of, of recreating something that, that did exist and no longer did or, or, or barely exists. Um, is there, though, a question of whether the organisational forms which we associate with the labour movement of the 20th century, whether those are really appropriate to our current situation and that perhaps the, the lack of appropriateness of those institutions is, uh, is part of the, the left's current weakness and, and that it's not a case of simply waiting around until the material conditions make uh, union organising easier, for instance? Absolutely. But uh, I don't think uh, we can do without union organizing either. Um, I, I think actually we need to look at contexts in which 
um, unions have been rebuilt in the face of um, neoliberal devastation. Um, and, you know, I think what happened in Bolivia um, before, uh, um, you know, the, the big struggles that got the MAS elected and so on, um, is one indicator of how it can be done, because um, there you did have uh, a much more aggressive version of the neoliberal project, a much more vicious uh, demolition of the union movement, and the reorganization of the spatial um, flows of capital and labor was such that you know you had increasingly very small workplaces dis uh, widely dispersed rather than these big concentrated centers of production. And what the union movement there did was to go into town centers and communities and recruit there and say, well, you don't have to be in a workplace to be a member of the union. We can still do something for you. Now, uh, Len McCluskey has uh, paid some lip service to this and you know, even put some money behind the idea of community organizing, but, you know, not really done much with it. Um, so that's one possible way of uh, thinking about it. But the other thing is, I think there's no shortcut here. We have to organize the unorganized. And that means we need people in the Labour Party going out to organize the class. Right? This is what we mean when we talk about, uh, you know, the, the, we use the euphemism of community organizing. What it means is, uh, if you find, um, you know, call center workers who aren't organized and who are underpaid and so on, and who, uh, uh, you know, have been there for a while, well, there's a chance that you can get them unionized. It's worth fighting for. Um, if you find that people are being driven out of their homes in order that developers can take it over and charge market rates, as it were, well, there's something you can do there. Um, you can organize people. Um, and obviously, that will have to respond to different local situations. Um, there will be very different circumstances, for example, in Bury North, um, uh, as compared to uh, somewhere like London. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't want to um, pre-script um, this organizational curve that we're going to have to go on here, but be, precisely because, I, I, you know, like everybody else, I've been wrong. Um, for the last few years, I was—I didn't anticipate Corbyn taking the leadership of the Labour Party. No, I don't think anybody did. Uh, I didn't anticipate the 2017 election result, um, uh, and obviously, I didn't anticipate the scale of Labour's wipeout um, in 2019. So we have to be prepared for the fact that we're going to be surprised, and that means <clears throat> probably there will be some opportunities. Um, and surprising opportunities coming from places that we don't expect. Um, but, um, you know, there, there, are some, there are some mainstays, there are some uh, continuous factors, and one of them is the labor capital antagonism, and therefore uh, the centrality of labor organization. On the question of this uh, newly Brexitized Conservative Party that's, you know, shifted further to, to the right than it was under Theresa May even, and the general rise of, uh, of what you've termed disaster nationalism. I recently spoke to Sival Mahan Valuvan um, on, on, the, on the topic of reactionary nationalism. And, um, you know, one of the points he makes is that th there's perhaps been an overemphasis on the consequences of the financial crash in terms of our politics. And that by looking too myopically at, at just the crash and, and, and the fallout, that that's perhaps fed into this narrative of... Uh, we're in a, an, an era of populism where uh, the far right can do well and the far left can do well, but that it, it serves to 
obscure the rise of reactionary nationalism that was going on long before the financial crash, uh, whether that's UKIP, the, the, the rise in the BNP that we saw, um, obviously the rise in the European far right. And do you think that that perhaps fed into an, an overly optimistic view of what could happen with the Corbyn project? Um, that's complicated because, uh, I mean, yes, uh, he's right. Uh, the, you know, the, the um, disaster nationalist uh, moment that I'm describing, uh, its roots can be traced back uh, to the 1990s, the late 90s, I think, actually. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, you can trace roots back uh, as far back as you like, but you can see certainly um, with the the sort of uh, response of often social democratic administrations to the problems of neoliberal administration, um, whether it, it, that's in France with the riots against the police, uh, whether that's in England with the sort of riots in the um, uh, northeast, um, or sorry, northwest, um, against um, both the police and the fascists. Um, you, you see the response uh, taking on a decidedly racialized hue. Um, and then, of course, you see uh, the war on terror and uh, the rise of securitarian discourses and Islamophobia, and all of that being mainstreamed by uh, sort of liberal intellectuals as well as the right. So that um, you know, you can't really say that this just uh, kicked off because of um, the credit crunch. However, it just is the case that uh, the credit crunch um, and the fallout has given it a tremendous um, catalyzing boost that it would not otherwise have had. Um, and it is just the case, on the other hand, that the left has seen far more opportunities um, following from the credit crunch than beforehand. So, I, I mean, you know, the, 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 there's a certain economistic way of interpreting uh, the relationship between political polarization and, uh, you know, capital's crisis. But once you take into account the way that it's uh, mediated through existing, you know, the capital state, the way it's metabolized by capital states, and the way it's mediated through existing policies, um, and those in, those would include obviously the architectures of nationalist militarism uh, and so on. Um, uh, then you can see that you know the the stuff about populism I don't think is entirely wrong. It's just that it it misses what the main dynamic is, and the main dynamic is um, the rise of reactionary nationalism, um, not just in uh, Europe and North America, obviously. Uh, but uh, in a lot of countries um, with a lot of uh, different um, sort of positions in the uh, global division of labor. So the Philippines, uh, India, Brazil, Turkey, to some extent, um, you know, you see this in a lot of places. And I think um, you can, of course, um, link this to the um, breakdown of uh, neoliberal hegemony and so on. But I think also, um, if you look at it um, in terms of these so-called walls that are being built, or the walls that people are demanding being built, uh, uh, whether it's uh, the peace wall, the so-called peace wall in uh, Israel, which is actually a segregation frontier, 
um, or uh, the wall on the Mexican border, which is actually a series of structures that have been built up over the years, um, they sort of respond to an, an imaginary in which um, it's been very clear that um, sort of uh, globalized institutions have uh, largely failed to deliver, uh, in which uh, the economic sovereignty of national states has palpably been constrained. Uh, not it's it's not the case that you know the states are no longer sovereign or anything like that. That was always overplayed, but palpably they have been constrained, and uh, in in a context in which um, the political itself has been constantly devalued. Wendy Brown talks about this in her recent book on neoliberalism and the rise of anti-democratic politics, in which uh, she points out that um, one of the effects of neoliberal uh, neoliberalism's war on the political and on the social, the idea that there is any such thing as a society, um, is that you lose the, first of all, you lose the ability to explain structural inequalities, hierarchies, uh, injustices, and so on. Um, and second of all, you lose the um, sort of concentrating moment, the political moment in which these things can be dealt with and resolved, uh, and so on. And so you get, uh, especially among uh, a section of the alt-right, MRAs and so on, um, a sort of phobia of the social. Um, and that phobia of the social takes the form of often, you know, like berating uh, millennial whiners, snowflakes and so on for going on about problems that are actually, you know, their own damn fault and nothing to do with society. Um, and you can see that in that context uh, where they want to defend you know their existing uh privileges or uh, such as they may be um in a global situation where uh, capitalism is in crisis where there isn't the same growth as before where globalizing institutions aren't really delivering um where uh palpably um the sort of power and strength of national state borders, uh, you know, is is being undermined for a long, long time, um, not for the reasons that they think. Um, there is this; um, you can see a certain uh, solace uh, that can be taken in the physicalist idea that we'll build a wall around ourselves, and that will protect us from all of these negative forces. Um, that uh, we associate uh, with outsiders. Um, so I think this imaginary, the nationalist imaginary, can be traced directly to neoliberal political economy, which goes uh, before and beyond the credit crunch itself. The credit crunch was just a punctuating moment in which this imaginary was crystallized. Um, and over the last few years, we've seen it come to uh, maturity. And on, on the domestic front, what do you think we can expect from the Boris Johnson government? Do you think we're looking at a move towards the uh, deregulating Singapore-style capitalism, or at least what, what they imagine Singapore to be, which is rather different from the reality? Or do you think there's any truth to uh, Johnson's self-portrayal as a, as a one-nation conservative, um, and that we may see uh, significant infrastructure spending, and that in order to uh, appease the markets, we may actually see, to, to a degree, a period of calm? 
Uh, okay, well, there's a few things there. I mean, first of all, just a, on a, parent, a parenthetic note, um, One Nation Conservative as a category is almost meaningless. I mean, uh, various figures from Thatcherite right have described themselves as One Nation Conservatives. Enoch Powell described himself as a One Nation Conservative. Um, I, I know what it's supposed to mean. Like, historically, you link it back to someone like Harold Macmillan, who said that uh, Toryism is just paternal socialism. But um, it, it, the category is, is so open-ended and indeterminate that practically anybody can claim it. So with that in mind, I think Johnson is actually um, torn uh, here between the, the, the rival political um, uh, imperatives. Because on the one hand, it makes perfect electoral sense for him to go, uh, and you know, as an opportunist, he should be thinking along these lines, for him to go um, a bit statist for him to start using uh, the freedoms provided by getting out of the European Union to uh, direct targeted investment. It wouldn't have to be a lot, uh, but targeted investment, particularly in the seats just won, because they were uh, moving toward the Conservatives for a while, most of them, and it would make sense for him to consolidate the Conservatives in those areas. Um, now, the question then is, um, how can he deliver that? Because he's got a party that's dominated by people who want a very different mode of oper operating um, and who very, very much do look to something like Singapore on the Thames. Um, and indeed, they're the only ones who have any coherent uh, analysis of how the British state and economy should be reformed post-Brexit. Um, so, I mean... Uh, I think that what we'll end up with is a messy series of compromises wherein you'll get um, opportunistic, just good enough kinds of intervention in uh, localized terms, but not a significant increase in public spending. Uh, possibly uh, an increase in public investment uh, based on borrowing, but probably not even as much as they were talking about because there will be a lot of pressure on them. Um, to keep the city of London happy, especially given that um, one of the conditions of withdrawing from the European Union is that the city of London is going to start potentially fragmenting, parts of it moving to Dublin, parts of it moving to Paris and so on, parts of it's already moving to Iceland. Um, in other words, uh, going to different sort of centres in order to have a different relationship uh, with the European Union and with the global uh, sort of division of labour. Um, so uh, he's actually going to be under an awful lot of pressure to try and to maintain the, the chokehold of austerity at the same time as he's going to have to, for opportunistic electoral reasons, try to cultivate the base with a little targeted spending. Um, I think, though, uh, if you look at what's happened with the Trump administration, uh, it's quite telling. All of his infrastructure projects uh, and so on, you know, the massive amounts of spending that he's going to do, which was going to involve crony capitalism, nepotism, all that stuff, um, using public funds to fund private um, investment. Um, well, that's all gone by the wayside. I mean, we haven't seen any of that. Um, the only thing that he has really stuck firm to, the only infrastructure project that he's stuck firm to is this bloody wall, which, again, is largely... Um, uh, insofar as it's it's to be taken literally, it's it's an hallucination. 
Um, and as far as it's not literally, it boils down to concentration camps, kids being separated from their parents, uh, and all the rest of it, and a lot of uh, violence against immigrants. Um, so I think if we were look to to judge uh, Johnson based on that, it's quite possible that the pressures he's under will mean that the only thing that he can do, uh, the only thing that he can really do to deliver for the base is to hammer immigrants really, really hard, uh, crack down hard on uh, uh, asylum seekers, um, build larger detention centers and more detention centers and invest in more um, sort of... Um, uh, technologies to repel migrants at the border or in the sea or whatever it happens to be, um, and to take a more belligerent stance with regard to what um, you know, what role Britain will play in terms of any future handling of uh, refugee crises, especially with climate change. Um, and I think um, the, the 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 problem there is. Um, the problem that we face is the evidence from other situations where right-wing nationalist governments have won is that that's sometimes enough. That might actually be enough. Um, you know, you can deliver a shaky economy, uh, but as long as you allow um, millions of people to feel that there is a we to which we belong and that the state is their exclusive clients, uh, as it were, or they're, you know, they have a, an exclusive relationship with the state that outsiders don't, um, that they will feel happy with that. And so the question is, how do we cut through that? I think um, that, you know, the only uh, way forward, obviously, is some sort of class articulation, um, some sort of antagonism, um, and, you know, we can talk about the billionaires and so on, um, but it's not clear exactly what that's going to look like um, by 2024, for example. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a process of discovery, trial and error. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you'd like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.